There's few cities on earth that are as historically significant as the city of Athens. Athens is mentioned in the book of Acts, but it has a very long history. Historians calculate that Athens has probably been occupied in some way, shape, or form for roughly 5,000 years. So it's one of the longest continually occupied cities on earth. Famous philosophers like Plato and Socrates were born in the city of Athens. Aristotle and other eminent philosophers lived there because it was a place where philosophy was often discussed and debated. There were many schools in that city. And one of the interesting things about Athens is that it's also considered perhaps the first democratic city on earth. The Athenians adopted democracy 600 years before Jesus Christ walked the face of the planet. So for about 26, about 2,600 years ago, democracy came to the city of Athens. And there's many other things about Athens that are, that are kind of interesting. It's sculptures, it's art are still studied by modern artists and sculptures, sculptors today. The Romans, even in conquering Athens, allowed it because it was such a significant city. It was one of the few cities they allowed a measure of autonomy, of independence, in order to honor its historic contributions to human civilization. Athens' influence is significant, perhaps monumental, in the formation of Western civilization on many level levels. And even though we may have never been to Athens, not think about Athens very much, the, the things, some of the things that took place in Athens over its long history continue to have an influence on our daily lives in terms of the way we process information, in terms of the philosophies that dominate our culture, in terms of the government structures that are part of our own civilization. So there's many interesting things about Athens, but Athens was also known to be a city wholly given over to idolatry, wholly given over to the worship of numerous, a plethora of pagan gods. There were so many gods in Athens that they even put up at least one statue to a nameless god, to an unknown god, just in case we missed any of the gods. We're going to put a statue up and dedicate it to the, to, to the unknown god. Now, this, in many respects, is similar to what we see in Canada today. Here we have a city that had all sorts of gods being acknowledged in worship. They erected a statue to the unknown god, but guess which god they actually overlooked? The true and living god, the god of the Bible. And in many respects, we see that same idea taking place in Canada, where there's an incessant, an incessant call to diversity. How many of you have heard that word this week? Diversity, 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 except when it comes to the true and living God. So anything goes, anything flies, any God can be worshiped, any ideology can be embraced, except if you worship the true and living God, well, you're going to be labeled an extremist or a religious zealot or a fundamentalist. So every God's welcome, except for the one that we believe to be the true and living God. That's the bad news, but the good news is what an opportunity for evangelism. So Paul, the, the great apostle evangelist, entered into the city of Athens, in this place that wasn't interested in the true and living God, but worshiped everything and anything else, and he saw it as an opportunity for evangelism, for apologetics, for defending, for standing up for the Christian faith. And so I think there's a lot of tie-ins between Paul's culture and Paul's circumstance 2,000 years ago and the one that we find ourselves in today. Last week, if you recall, if you were here, I mentioned the word apologetics. So in Christian thinking, if we picture the Christian faith as a stool with three legs on it, there's three sort of strands or branches or aspects to the Christian faith that are important for us to think about. One is our theology, which refers to our, the content of the Christian faith. That's one of the, the legs that holds up the stool that we sit on called Christianity. 
There's also another leg called ethics. And ethics deals with the practice, the application of what we believe to be true. It's how to live, how to talk, what to say, how, how to be married well. All the ethical questions that we wrestle with. And the third leg is apologetics. And apologetics, sort of an art and a science all rolled into one of defending, of standing for, of instructing people in the faith vis-a-vis false religions, of defending the Christian faith. And it's a biblical word. It comes from the Greek word apologia. In this particular passage, we can learn much from Paul's example as he engages in apologia, apologetics, which is part of evangelism. So Paul enters into this city after having been shooed out of his previous one. And when he enters in, what we notice first, and we're going to be studying Acts 17, verses 16 to 34, is that he is provoked. His soul is stirred. He has an emotional response. He has a spiritual response to the idolatry that he witnesses in Athens. And so he engages in apologetics with his opponents. And there's a few lessons we can learn from Paul that will help us to be better evangelists, to be better apologists for Christ. And here's the first one, observing your surroundings. You might think that's that's pretty simple stuff, Pastor Aaron. I mean, that's, that's pretty basic. I'm not trying to be basic to insult your intelligence, but I have observed that there's a temptation for us to form holy huddles, to clutter up our lives with strictly church ministry, to only associate with church people, to hide from the world around us. Well, if you're going to be a good apologist, the first thing you have to do is observe the world around you. Pay attention to what's being said to what's being taught. Listen to the lies. Look at the brokenness. See people the way Christ sees them. It says in the 16th verse, now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, so he'd been sent ahead and he was waiting for his Silas and Timothy to come after him. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. We have to see the lies and the idolatry before we can address it. We have to see the lies and the idolatry before we can address it. This requires us to get out of our holy huddles, our sanctified circles, to actually talk with and observe lost people in the world around us, to even go into the public square and to see where the people are, into the academies, into the medical establishments, into the legal institutions, into businesses, into malls, into parks, and to strike up conversations with people, to observe, to listen carefully to who they worship and what they believe. In Athens, it would have been a little bit easier. Literally, there were marble statues erected in the streets. So you could see the the names of the specific gods that they were worshiping. I doubt very many of you have neighbors that have marble statues of gods in their front yards. So you actually have to have a conversation. I know it's scary, but you have to have a conversation with lost people to find out what God or gods they worship, to ask meaningful questions about their belief systems. Now, when we go to where people are, and we see the lies, and we see the idolatry, it, there's going to be times when it makes us angry, and it should in a righteous way. There's going to be other times when it, it's probably a little overwhelming. It's like, I, I need to go back. I need to go hang out with my church people for a while. I'm just, I'm just inundated with the lies and the nonsense. I can't handle it. And there, there's a place for Sabbath. There's a place for retreat. There's a place for just being with Christians. But I have a sneaky suspicion that for many people, the the problem is the opposite and that there's very little meaningful interaction with lost people. You may work with lost people, but you're not really having meaningful conversations with them. We need to go where the people are. We're going to be angry and at other times we're going to be sad. But what we also want to have is we want our spirits to be provoked. It says here, his spirit was provoked within him. This is a reference to the Christian conscience. 
It's like this holy restlessness. So we need to associate with lost people. I just want to challenge you and ask you a very simple question. Do you associate with, in a meaningful way, lost people? Do you ask questions? Or are you one of those antisocial Christians that doesn't hang out with lost people? You know, I've mentioned this before. The church is a global phenomenon, the universal church. The church then manifests itself in local assemblies of believers. And this is a good thing. This is a local assembly, a local expression of the Christian church. But oftentimes, Christian churches become almost like the old monasteries. So it's like, well, I'm, I'm introverted, I'm antisocial, but I love truth, so I'm just going to spend my life preaching inside the walls of a church. And unfortunately, many churches actually attract antisocial pastors and preachers and missionaries who love studying and who want to preach and who want to articulate truth, but they don't really connect with the world around them. We need fewer antisocial Christians and more Christians who are out in the public square dialoguing and debating and connecting for redemptive purposes with lost people. If you want to influence people, you don't just influence them from afar off. You need to get into their lives. Someone said years ago, you can impress people from a distance, but you can only influence them up close. Paul's conscience is stirred. Keep your conscious, conscience tuned in to the things of God. Now, you might ask, okay, I want to, I'd like some of that in my life. I'd like to be more provoked in a spiritual way to engage with lost people. But how do, how do I actually get that? Do I just sort of huff and puff and hope that God expands my heart for lost people? How does a person tenderize their conscience? How does a person become more loving more concerned about lost people, more upset about lies. Well, the word of God helps us to understand that our conscience is shaped by the word of God. Our conscience is shaped by the word of God. If your conscience is weak, I know why. It's because it's not being shaped by the word of God. I'll give you one verse, Psalm 119, verse 11. The psalmist writes, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. When the word of God is hidden in our heart and affects us on a deep level, which refers to the whole of the inner man, it insulates us against sin. It makes us aware of the sin in our own lives. And if you're aware of the sin in your own life, obviously you're going to be aware of the sin in the lives of others around us. So if you want to increase your conscious conscience, if you want to be more tuned into the spiritual realities of the world around you, you need to study and meditate upon God's word. Now, a tender conscience that is filled with the word of God is both protective and it's reactive. It protects you from sin. So have you ever had a moment where you're sinning and, and, and immediately like, ah, oh, I don't like that. And you, you repent of it. Like you don't let it linger in your life. That's, that's typical, that, that's going to be part of our lives. And it's, it's normal to sin and then immediately be arrested by the guilt of that sin and turn away from it. But it's super scary, super scary when you're sinning and you just don't care. When your conscience has been seared, when you're just, whatever, and you just keep doing it over and over again or saying it over and over again or thinking it over and over again. How do you correct that? Well, that's an absence of truth. That's an absence of the word of God because the word of God is not just true. It's transformatively true. The Bible tells us that the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It will always penetrate to the deepest recesses of our being. So if, if your conscience is not tender to the things of God, if it's seared, it's because you're not spending enough time meditating upon or reading God's word. So it's protective and it's also reactive. It, it will cause you to be like, oh, I'm grieved at what I see in the world around me. I'm grieved at the lies that people are being exposed to. 
I'm grieved at the antichrist ideologies that are being taught at all levels and institutions of Canadian culture. I'm grieved by it. And I'm not just going to spend my time criticizing it. I'm going to be proactive in my response. It's easy to be a critical person. And Susie and I were talking this week about how in our church, we like the fact that there's a lot of critical thinkers in our church. You're not going to slip things by them. They actually read their Bible. They actually think about the issues. They actually study the world around you. They're not going to be duped easily. But what we don't want is simply to be a church that criticizes the world. Look at all the bad stuff in the world around us. We want to be proactive in our response. We want to evangelize the world. We want to build new institutions instead of just criticizing the ones that exist. Instead of just criticizing the educational system, we want to actually proactively educate our children. So we want to be proactive. So a good tender conscience is both protective and reactive. So this is step number one. You have to observe your surroundings and see what's going on. Secondly, having observed your surroundings, you don't stay silent. You then bring the truth to bear. You explain the truth of God's word. So Paul is provoked and it says then, so he reasoned. Notice the mind word there. He was a thoughtful communicator. So he reasoned in the synagogue, which is a public place of religious dialogue, with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace, how often? Every day. It wasn't haphazard. It wasn't just once in a while. It was a regular part of his life. With those who happen to be there. Now you might say, well, Paul was full-time in ministry, so he had lots of time. No, he wasn't. No, he wasn't full-time in ministry. Because as you read into the later part of Acts 17 and 18, what you find out is that he's actually a tent maker. So he was preaching and dialoguing in public, but he was also working with his hands. He was making tents in order to support himself in ministry. So there's no excuses here. He wasn't just full-time in ministry. He was a hands-on, practical tradesman, not some highfalutin intellectual that just hid from people in his office studying commentaries. He was in the world and debating and dialoguing with those around him. The word he reasoned literally means he debated, he lectured, or he taught. So role modeling is important. I think we understand that. And when we're sharing our faith, as we say, when we're preaching, when we're proclaiming the truth of God's word, obviously we, we, we talk about our personal relationship with Christ, our experiences with Christ, our love for Christ, sort of the emotional aspect of our Christian faith. And we want to we want to show that we're the real deal and we actually love Jesus and we're sold out to him and we love people and all that sort of thing. That's important, but you know what? That's not enough. We also have to d debate and dialogue. I remember maybe in the late 80s or early 90s when I was a teenager, there was a big emphasis on, on friendship evangelism and it's good. Build friendships, you know, let your, your walk sort of get out in front of your talk and make sure you're loving on people and talking about your personal relationship with Christ. But one of the challenges or one of the problems with that is that I would hear people say, well, I don't need to actually talk about Jesus. It's just my lifestyle that will win them over. It's not true. The Bible does not teach that. If they don't hear, they will never get saved. The word of God must be talked about, taught, preached. Now, I understand that there's places in the world where people have come to faith in Jesus Christ without an evangelist. God shows up in a dream and he preaches the gospel to them and they get saved. I've heard stories like that and I believe them to be true. But they're still preaching. There's still dialogue. There's still the communication of truth. They need to understand they're a sinner, basically, and that there's a savior and his name's Jesus Christ, the son of God. And they need to repent of their sins and trust in him for their salvation. Well, if, you, if you're like, I, I would like to do that better. Look, we live at a point in history where there are more resources available to us than any, any previous generation of Christians has ever had access to. Any previous generation. Now, all of us are going to have capacity limits. Okay, I, I, I will never continue to become a better and better and better preacher, like ad infinitum. I have, a, I have a limit to my preaching capacity, to my verbal skills. You have a limit. You're, you might be more verbally skilled than I am. You might be less verbally skilled than I am. Whatever. 
doesn't matter. It's not a comparison game. God uses all sorts of preachers and teachers to get the word of God across. But to say, well, I don't have, I don't know where to turn. Folks, there are thousands of Christian podcasts being put out every single week across North America. We have numerous versions of the Bible in various eras of English that have been given to us. We have commentaries. We have digital Bibles. We have online seminaries. When I went to seminary for like nine years, it was all in class. You had to actually drive to school. Now you can earn PhDs online. There's all sorts of access to information. There's seminars and conferences and apologetic material. So if there's an information deficit in your life, guess whose fault it is? Go like this. It's your fault. There's, we, we're not limited in our access to information. So I'm not suggesting that you need to quit your job and spend 80 hours a week studying and reading. But if you're not carving out any time to think through the issues to read and study, you're not going to keep up with what's going on in the world around you. Someone's teaching somebody something out there. Everyone's being taught something. The ideal, our, our opponents, those that are opposed to Christ, they're not silent. They're not without resources. They have their websites and their podcasts and their books and their quote unquote sermons. Someone's going to be teaching somebody. So why not bring the truth of God to bear by growing in our ability to dialogue about truth. Okay, here's a third one. When you're preaching the word of God, you're sharing the truth, you're obviously going to be attacked. And it's, it can come in a variety of ways. But you have to resolve as best as you can to say, I'm not going to be rattled by my opponents. I'm not going to allow personal insults. I'm not going to allow all their little sneaky tricks to silence me whether it's financial threats or name calling or firings or whatever it might be, I'm just not going to, I'm not going to allow it to happen. So don't allow yourself to be rattled by your opponents. Paul is preaching away and he meets opposition. Now there's various schools of philosophy active in Athens in the first century. If you've studied even high school level philosophy, you may, you may remember some of these uh, groups. And there's two of them that pop up here that push back. The Bible says some of the Epicurean, so that's Epicureanism, maybe that rings a bell. And Stoic philosophers, you may have heard of Stoicism. Philosophers, it's an interesting word. It comes from two Greek words, wisdom and words. So wisdom words, that's what philosophy actually means. But a lot of philosophy is not wise. <laughs> by God's standards. There's all sorts of pagan, nonsensical philosophies. This, the Epicureans were active there. The Stoics were active there. They also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he is preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, which was a, a giant rock outcropping, or you could kind of get up on top of it and preach to the crowds, named after the god Ares. So he gets on this basically giant podium platform thing. They bring him there saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians... And the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. So this was like a pastime for the Athenians. Let's get everybody on the Areopagus and everyone sort of gets a turn. It's like an open mic. You can just rattle on about whatever philosophy or belief system you had. But two of the dominant groups in this area were the Epicureans and the Stoics. So just to be like super simple, if you want a memorable definition, an Epicurean philosopher is basically someone that says the end goal of life is pleasure. That's Epicureanism in a nutshell. Life is about pleasure. The modern Epicureans, we would call them hedonists. 
You're a hedonist, means I'm just in pursuit of pleasure. The goal of life is just pleasure. So because pleasure was the highest ideal for Epicureans, they taught that you should fear nothing in life. Just live life, except for death. Death was kind of scary, but just live life to the max. Enjoy life. Take life by the tail. They also weren't really all that concerned about whether you believed in God or not. It was kind of inconsequential. They were what you could call skeptics. Some might have believed in God. Some might not have believed in God. Most of them would have believed that God was not really involved or the gods were not really involved in life. Life is just about pleasure. You're born, you eat, you drink, you get drunk, you have sex, you acclimate, uh, acclimate money, and then you die. And that's life. So that's Epicurean philosophy in a nutshell. Does that sound familiar at all with some of the things we see in our culture? These old philosophies don't die. They just are reincarnated with different language. Okay, now the second group is the Stoics. The Stoics, to be very simplistic, their view of life was everything is about rationalism. Now we're into being rational, but rationalism, rationality is the highest ideal. The human mind has the capacity by itself to understand everything that it needs to understand. If we're going to understand the world, we don't need revelation. The human mind can figure out everything. The human mind can figure out everything. Human rationality should be trusted and should be supreme over emotions. Emotion, sentiment, religiosity, spirituality, doesn't matter. Rationalism is where it's at. We should fend for ourselves. They were also, for the most part, pantheists. So a pantheist is basically someone that says, everything is God. Everything is God. Panentheism is the belief that God is in everything. But the pantheist, it's kind of like Hindu philosophy. Everything is part of the cosmic being. Whoever he, she, or it is called, they are part of God. They were totally fine with suicide. If life's not working for you, and the logical conclusion is I'm not receiving what I think I should get, suicide is fine. They were into radical egalitarianism. Uh, there was no difference between citizens. Everyone should have access to anything they want. We're all, they're sort of anti-authority. And this is stoicism. So the modern example of that would be scientism in our culture. Ultimate truth, ultimate truth can be determined through mathematics, through bio biological ex experiments, through chemistry, through the physical science. Man is the highest, man's, man's beliefs, man's science, man's equations, man's conclusions are literally top of the heap. Now, historic people in Western civilization, Christians, believed in science and the validity of mathematics and literature and art. They studied these things, but they would always take God's revelation and they would put it on the top of the pile. It's the ultimate authority, ultimate knowledge is from this book. And everything else flows out of that. So even the great universities like Oxford University, the first doctorate issued on planet Earth was in the study of theology, divinity. It wasn't until many, 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 many generations later that people called physicians started to be called doctors. Doctor means teacher. And the earliest doctors were all theologians because they saw that the study of God's word was supreme to all other disciplines. Everything else is subject to evaluation by God's word. Well, we have completely taken that triangle and flipped it on its head today where all the human subjects are superior. So this is why this explains, you might hear the words and not understand the philosophy behind it, but this is why we hear in our culture, just trust the science. Okay, this is, this is actually a philosophical claim. It's an epistemological claim. It's about where does ultimate knowledge come from? What is the highest form, the most lofty form of knowledge in the world. 
And in Canada, most people would say science. That's stoicism, just repackaged. So Paul is debating pleasure seekers and rationalists, neither of which have been exposed to God's revelation. So it's important for us to, whether we, whether we remember the word Epicureanism or Stoicism, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter. But when you go out of here, it's important for you to think philosophically. To think, okay, what, what are the assumptions behind the claims that people make in culture? When someone says, just trust the science, what am I, what am I actually hearing in there? What lie do I need to address? When someone says, just eat, sleep, and be merry. Just live life to the fullest. Radical bodily autonomy. Do what you want. Sleep with whoever you want. What philosophy, what lie am I actually hearing there that needs to be addressed with the word of God? And the neat thing is, is the more people you talk with, the more you realize people are people are people and they're not particularly original. And the lies that are present in Western civilization today are not new. They're just wearing new dresses and new pants, but they're not new. They're the same recycled philosophies, antichrist philosophies that have been concocted since the beginning of time. Well, Paul enters into dialogue with them. Of course, all these philosophies are trying to make sense out of life, answer the big questions. Who are we? What's the meaning of life? Where are we going? Who am I ultimately responsible to? Those are the basic interesting questions of philosophy. Paul is preaching about Christ, the eternal word, and he's preaching about the resurrection. And what, what do they initially say to Paul? Oh, he's a babbler. The Greek word for babbler is spermologos. And this word literally means seed words or in the colloquial seed picker. So there's actually, it's kind of a weird title, but in English, there's the word spermologist. And a spermologist is someone who collects seeds. So when they were calling Paul, essentially a seed picker, a spermologist, they were saying, oh, he's just going around and picking up a little bit from this religion and a little bit from that religion, a little bit of this philosophy, and it's not coherent. It doesn't make sense. He's, he's babbling. He's just He's just talking religious nonsense. There's no cohesion to his religious or philosophical claims. And this is not an uncommon allegation levied against preachers of the gospel today. It's like, you, you say you're, you go preach in your churches, but what you, you don't make sense. Your, your beliefs don't really answer any of the big questions that people are interested in. And Christians often get on the defensive and they're like, well, yeah, maybe, maybe it's true. Maybe, maybe the Christian faith is just sentimental drivel. Maybe it's just emotionalism. So even when we talk about religion and spirituality, we don't usually connect it with rationalism. It's, just, it's, sort, of, it's sort of my Sunday stuff, and I'd prefer if my coworkers don't actually know what I'm doing on Sunday because they're probably going to make fun of me, and I'm not going to have any response to them because it is sort of just my emotional time with Jesus, but there's no real rationality behind it. It's, it's nonsense. We're just a bunch of seed pickers. We're just a bunch of babblers. Now, there are times when in response to these kind of allegations, you may be dialoguing with someone. They're like, wait, you don't make sense. What you're saying doesn't make sense. I don't want to hear it. There are times when you've got to determine, okay, is this an unreasonable person? Like, is there even any hope of having a conversation here? When you're being attacked or called names, babbler, seed picker. Is there any reason to have a conversation? Some, sometimes people are so unreasonable that they, they should be ignored or avoided. But that doesn't mean that every time we're insulted, we should respond with a verbal thrashing in return. We need to maintain our composure and preach the truth of God's word instead of getting so defensive all the time. Paul remained very rational he kept preaching. He was eventually invited to have a public platform to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's a fourth thing that we can learn from Paul. We're calling it springboarding. I was talking with Francis, our signer earlier, and she's like, how do I sign springboarding? <laughs> 
It's like making connections, seeing something in the culture around you and using it as a diving board, a springboard, an opportunity to enter into a spiritual conversation. This is what Paul did. He was able to grab something that was of mutual interest to his listeners and springboard into a conversation about the word of God to to create a sermon. Look what it says in 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Is that true? Are all people religious? They are religious. Don't ever buy into the myth. It's an absolute myth of spiritual neutrality. That's a myth. Secularism, it's spiritually neutral. That's That's not spiritually neutral. That's just repackaged polytheism. That's what secularism is. It's like, well, you can worship whatever God you want. Secularism is polytheism. It's not spiritually neutral in any way, shape, or form. In Romans chapter one, by the way, this same preacher, Paul, acknowledges that all men can perceive God. You know why they can perceive God? Because God has made himself evident through creation. Now, this does not mean that all men can perceive God in a salvific way, in a way that will automatically lead them to salvation because the the natural bent of the human is to resist the things of God. So God reveals himself, but then it also takes a work of the spirit to enliven a person, to regenerate a person, to receive the things of God. But the reason why people reject God is not because of an absence of evidence. It's not an absence of evidence. It's not an absence of revelation. God is evident and obvious to every human being. We just suppress the truth. We suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So Paul is not getting into all of that here in Acts, but he's acknowledging that everyone, everyone is religious. You talk to so I don't believe in God. Well, what's your ultimate authority? Me? Then you have a God and he bears your name. I just believe in science. Well, then that's your God. Everyone has an ultimate authority, something that ultimately dictates how they think, how they act, and how they feel. Everyone is religious. Everyone is religious. And by the way, I know some of you are probably raised in churches. Christianity isn't a religion, it's a relationship. It's a religion. It's called a religion in the book of James. It's a religion. It just happens to be the true religion. So let's not play these word games. I know we have a relationship with God, but Christianity is a religion. It just happens to be the true and right one. So he's using this springboard. Everyone here believes in God. And then he he gives this illustration. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. This is a springboard. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Now at this point, if one of his opponents had said, hey, we don't want to hear from you. He could have said, no, just a second. You've already admitted there's at least one God that you've never heard about. So hear me out. Hear me out. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed something. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So what we have here is Paul making a basic theistic claim. There is a God and he created the world. This is tethered, by the way, to the first of the 10 commandments. There is a God. Don't worship other ones. So this very basic theology he's unpacking. You don't have to get super detailed with people at this point in early evangelism. He goes on to say, and he made from one man, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. By the way, this is a polemic against theistic evolution. This is Paul saying, 
I affirm the Genesis record as accurate. God didn't use evolution to over a period of time make a series of men. God created all of humanity from one man. All of us come from Adam. Even Eve comes from Adam. She was essentially his female clone. This, so Paul is affirming the authority of what we call the book of Genesis, having determined and allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. So now he's affirming what happened in the Tower of Babel incident. He's affirming nationhood. He was a nationalist. He's affirming nationhood, that there are different, there's one race, we all come from Adam, but there's different families on the earth, different ethnoi, that's the biblical word, different ethnic groups, different families or groups, and he's determined their boundaries, but guess who created all of them? God. So this wasn't the Athenian God he was promoting, the Jewish God, or in the modern context, people say, oh, the Christian God is just the white man's God. No, he's the God of all the ethnoi on the planet. Literally, we all came from one man, Adam. And then he goes on to say that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. For then he goes back and he quotes from a couple of their philosophers. In him, we live and move and have our being as even some of your own poets have said. And then a second one, for we indeed are his offspring. So he grabs, he was familiar with Greek poetry and he grabs a couple quotes from two different poets that basically said, there is a God that created us. We're from him. Not to say that their philosophies were fully accurate, but there's often truth even in false religion. And he makes the connections there. He says, we should seek after God. Now the question is, if Paul says we should seek after God, but later Romans 3.10 tells us that we don't seek after God, then is he making like some sort of an excuse here? No, he's reminding us of human responsibility. Humans are responsible to seek after God. The fact that we don't by nature seek after God damns us because it reveals our punkishness, our rebellion, our natural bent away from the things of God. But before you realize that God seeks and God saves and God sent his son and came our way and regenerated us, you need to understand you are responsible. God has not, can never be blamed with having hidden information from us that we should have known. No, he's made everything necessary for salvation known to us. And he's not a distant God. He sustains the world. So why then does it seem at times that God is distant? Because of human sinfulness. And yet still we ought to pursue God. So he quotes from a couple philosophies. He springboards from this nameless idol into a discussion about the true and living God. And then in verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought. So this is a, a command. We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. So on one hand, hey, you know that idol to the unknown God, springboard. Let me tell you about a God that you probably have never heard about. After having told them about the God that they'd never heard about, he goes and he boots the idol down. This is actually not what God is like. God is not one that you can manufacture in your own image. God has made something in his own image. Humanity. We are to reflect him, although we're not him. But human beings like to make gods in their own image. Oh, we're going to carve out this idyllic figure, this, this man horse thing, and we're going to give it a God name. We're going to look at the stars, the constellations, There's a couple stars up there. We're going to give that a God name. It's like, that's not what God is like. God is the uncaused cause. God is the uncreated creator. He is the true and living God. We ought not to think that he is like us or like the stuff of the material world. In fact, he's calling out the, the nonsense of it. It just makes no sense for the creature. Think about this. 
to take that which is from creation and try to make the creator out of it. It's, it's nonsense. It's nonsense. He goes on to say, the times of ignorance God overlooked. This is a reference to the forbearance of God. God could have squashed us in Genesis chapter three and said, I'm just going to be done with it all because I know where this is leading. But God is a God of forbearance, of patience, of endurance. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a time or fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So now we know who that man is because there's only one who was raised from the dead by the power of God. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. So by overlooked, what he's not saying is, oh, everyone before this has a good excuse now. That would contradict Romans chapter one, verse 20, written by the same writer that said, man is without excuse. So it's not, it's not to say that, well, everybody before Christ is going to get saved. God's just going to overlook it all and wipe the record clean, but it's pointing to his forbearance. Humanly, humanly, the ignorance of humanity apart from Christ and before Christ was somewhat understandable, not completely understandable because God reveals himself in creation, but somewhat understandable. But in Christ, it's like, okay, I've been revealing myself to you through creation now for what? 4,000 years. Now I've revealed myself to you through my son. There's no more excuse. You don't need a second Jesus, a third Jesus, a 67th book in the Bible, a Pope, another religion. I've given you everything you need to know to be saved and to understand me. There's no excuse. And then we're reminded that God will judge and that the resurrection of Christ proves that he will judge. Now that they heard of resurrection, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Well, that's to be, exp- to, to, to be expected. I don't care how good of a preacher are. There's some people who are going to say, you're a loser. So some are going to mock. But others said, oh, we will hear you again about this. Doesn't mean they were converted in the moment, but we want, we want more of us. Let's, let's, let's keep this conversation going. That's what you want to look for. You don't want to spend your time endlessly chasing down someone that's already said to you multiple times, I'm not interested. But if there's a little bit of an interest there, the door's open, you carry the conversation on. You don't necessarily need to seal the deal in one conversation. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed among those among whom also were Dionysius, uh, the Arapagite. That's a, that's a pagan name, but this man now has a new identity in Christ. And a woman named Damaris and others with them. So it doesn't appear that their conversions were immediate, but eventually they were converted. And it opened the door for ongoing discussion and debate. I don't know what percentage of Paul's audience believed. Maybe it was a quarter of 1%. Maybe there were thousands of people listening and just a few believed. I don't know, but it was still worth it. It was still worth it. You may have a thousand conversations in your life and only one person comes to faith in Jesus Christ. That's worth it. Don't say, well, I've tried this. It doesn't work. Try again. Still didn't work. Try again. You never know how the Lord is going to use you. Look for examples in, in, in our own world to build conversations. For example, you could springboard off this idea of tolerance and diversity. You could say, hey, would you say that tolerance and diversity of opinion is kind of important to you? Person says, yeah. Okay, well then would you tolerate me sharing with you my faith? If they say no, if they say no, I won't, they say, well then, so you actually believe that your, your beliefs are exclusive. Yeah, well, so do I. So can I share with you my exclusive beliefs? You may bump into a, an evolutionist. Well, you, you, is it true that you believe we evolved from amoeba or that the world just sort of came into existence by chance? 
Yeah, I do. So, so chance is your presupposition. Chance is, is foundational to your view of how the world came about. Yeah, well, is there a chance that you might be wrong? <laughs> and if there is a chance, would you mind me sharing with you why I think you are perhaps wrong? You could talk about how we also have a presupposition. What is our presupposition? In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. That's our presupposition. Everybody starts with a presupposition. And when you start with a presupposition, in the beginning, God, what you want to ask is, does my presupposition lead to logical answers and conclusions about life's big questions? How did I get here? What's the essence of humanity? Where am I going? Who am I responsible to? Christianity is a cohesive system. It answers all those questions. Check, 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 check. If someone says, we just came about by chance, well, then what is your moral code? Where does that come from? Why, do, why can't I just run my sword through you right now? I mean, why would that be wrong for me to do that? See, the evolutionary mindset, the, the atheist mindset, doesn't actually provide any sort of a livable moral foundation. And that leads to anarchy and chaos. You can't organize households or families or civilizations or not run someone over on the road because you're late for work without some sort of a moral code. So you can just have these conversations with people and see where it leads. But regardless of the response, let us be reminded that God goes before and he wins souls to himself. I'll end with one quick story. We had our our picnic last night for our school school year and we were sitting out in the parking lot and a friend of mine and his family just moved down from Kingston to be in our church and their kids are enrolled in our school. And I said, hey, you know that, see that person over there? And I, I told them that person's story and then another person, another person. I was just sort of, yeah, you might want to get to know them and this is, and what was kind of cool about it is a huge percentage of the people I was pointing out weren't Christians two or three years ago. And they don't come from Christian backgrounds, but they get it. They get it. And it was a good reminder that even apart from our own effort, God is working in people's lives from a variety of backgrounds, leading them to himself. So at the beginning of this new ministry season, let's be be encouraged. Let's do our best to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, but also trust him to do what we cannot. 